Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Stocks for beginners. So number one, you have to have passion. Like, and I can't stress this point enough. There was a famous basketball coach who said, you can't teach height. Okay, well, in investing, you can't teach passion. If you don't have it, just hire somebody else to do it. Don't do it yourself because you'll be competing against people who do have it. And therefore, they'll stick with the problems longer. Their capacity to suffer will be so much greater than yours. And by the way, there's plenty of suffering that comes with investing. Hi, and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. How can listening to music make you a better investor? What if there's something more to life than investing stocks and money? I know, it's an interesting thought. Today, I'm joined by Vitaly Katzenelson. Hello, Vitaly. Hello, Phil. How are you? Vitaly Katzenelson is the Chief Investment Officer of Denver-based value investment firm IMA. He's written for publications including Financial Times, Barron's, Institutional Investor and Foreign Policy. His articles are also published on his website, Contrarian Edge, and in audio format on his Intellectual Investor podcast. Vitaly lives in Denver with his wife and three kids where he loves to read, listen to classical music, play chess and write about life, investing and music. And Soul in the Game is his third and first non-investing book. So let's go back to the start by talking about growing up in Russia. And is it pronounced Murmansk? 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 I think Russians say uh, Murmansk. Americans say Murmansk. Whatever works. <laughs> okay. I'm not sure how Australians say it, or yeah, but uh, yeah. Oh, we just copy whatever people say in the United yeah. States. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So tell us about growing up in um, in it was Soviet. It was still Soviet Russia at the time, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's, it is very important to understand that I was growing up not just in Russia, but in Soviet Russia. My family left Russia in 1991. So let me describe you the Russia in the 1980s. Every single business, from barbershop to factory to movie theater, was owned by the government. I don't think I know a single person who owned their own business not, you know, at, at that time. So the concept of capitalism just did not exist. The concept of private property barely existed. So I knew nothing about capitalism growing up in Russia. And let me tell you what it looks like. And there was actually, to me, this message is very important because today, young generation kind of romanticizes about socialism. And I tell you, it does not work. When everybody owns everything, nobody owns nothing. That's exactly what happened in Russia. The Store shelves were empty most of the time. My mom struggled to buy meat and to feed us. You know, we, we never went hungry, but it was always a big task to make sure we had food. The economy was centrally controlled. So did some bureaucrats in Moscow and St. Petersburg was deciding how much meat you know, Murmansk should get. It was a, well, here, here's the interesting part. I look at this now, and from my perspective today, it was... It, it looks like it would have been a very difficult life, but I was young, you know. So, so it was my childhood, 
and I was happy. So it's a despite all this, there was still a lot of happiness, you know. And so when we moved moved to the United States in 1991, we see this incredible contrast. We go to the grocery store, and there is this incredible abundance of food, abundance of everything. And this is when I knew that capitalism really works. And, and it sounds like um, there was part of what was the happiness of your childhood and what uh, contributed to the happiness of your childhood um, was your father's likability and his likability in the community as well. I, I was blessed by having t- uh, terrific parents. Just this is, you know, this is I turned out okay just because I had a wonderful, wonderful parents. And um, what made life a little bit more difficult in Russia at the time was that I'm Jewish. And Jews were kind of, Put in a slightly lower caste than everybody else, or than at least Russians, or you know, than Russians, and so there is this kind of slight hint, hint of uh, anti-Semitism or discrimination, you know, kind of that uh, I went through my life. But what made this all bearable? This incredible belief and love from my parents, you know, like I, my parents always made me feel that I can achieve anything I want. And this is extremely important because today I'm a parent. I have three kids. And this is something I always have to uh, tell my kids, that if they try, they can achieve anything and that they have it in them that they can do it. So what was the view in Soviet Russia at the time of capitalism? What were you taught about capitalism in the capitalist West and what it was like? So capitalism was equated to greed. So capitalists are greedy. Like... um, Few times a month, you know, my my class would be taken to movie theater, and we would see a documentary. And I remember some of the documentaries showed Americans, these heartless people who eat hamburgers all the time, and where you know, it is a country where black people are constantly lynched. Of course, when I moved to the United States, I learned that the part about hamburgers is is true. <laughs> Um, Not forgetting hot dogs. That's right. No, that's that's right. Actually, I, I have a hot dog story. I have to tell you a hot dog story. Okay, so just picture this: 1990, the relationship between the United States, the West, and Russia kind of becoming better, and Americans start to send these care packages to Russia, and we get one of those care packages. And what you have to understand is this: Russian language does not have a word hot dog. There's links and there's sausages. And we get this package and it says hot dog. I'm like, oh my God, these guys are really screwed up. They eat dogs, basically. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's that's my kind of American hot dog story. But I feel I forgot what what the question was. We were just talking about the view of uh, capitalism in the West and that you were taught as a child. Yeah, no, it's a, I think the, the most interesting part that I was told that Americans are heartless. And we arrived to Denver, my whole family. And imagine, so six or seven of us, I forget how many. And we have this, we bring all our belongings with us. And we have, I don't know, 30 different bags or something. And we get picked up at the airport by these heartless Americans that take our bags, put them in their minivans and trucks, take us to a fully furnished apartment with stuff refrigerator. And, you know, these people also take us to a grocery store and tell us how to shop for groceries and then come to us and visit us every so often just to make sure we acclimated to this country. So 
like I wish everybody was as heartless as Americans that you know they greeted us. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah. So that that's that's what I was taught, and that's and that's the America experience, which was very different. Just before I forget about it, I just wanted to go back to something you mentioned when we first started talking about socialism and the urge for socialism that seems to be gripping the West at the moment. Uh, that mm-hmm. there seems to be nothing seems to be good about capitalism, and people want more and more government control it seems sorry there's no question there <laughs> i just made that that's a, no statement. no no but let me actually let me, so actually i've been thinking a lot about this yes and let me run this framework on you okay mm-hmm. so let me give you two extremes the socialism i experienced in russia the one i described and the capitalism that existed in the united states maybe 100 years ago not now 100 years ago and i'm talking about when you work on the meat plant extremely long hours in ungodly conditions for robber barons exactly where mm. you can get hurt etc and you know so that's like this so we have two extremes you have the capitalism on the right socialism on the left uh the this sort of capitalism 100 years ago now if you look what happened to american or western capitalism you know it got diluted with socialism okay so what two things happened first of all taxation went up and second of all government involvement in uh, regulation has changed. So unions, and, 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 uh, and we should thank unions for that, at least in the beginning, because they have led a tremendous change. So today, like, and I'm going to use make up a number. So today about, th- actually, I think it's about right, 33% of your income in America goes to the government, to the governments, to the local government, to the federal government, etc. So let's use that 33% as the degree of socialism in, in the United States, okay? Where, let's say, let's take Europe, and, I'm, and I don't know this number, but I probably, if I said 50 to 55% of income uh, went to the government, I probably would not be wrong, okay? So, but here's the thing. When a third of your money goes to the government, you own a little bit less. The government owns one third of your paycheck. When governments own 55% of your paycheck, you own only 45, you own less and less. So what happens over time, the more you go to the left, the more money government takes from you and redistributes to other people, the more services they provide, the less ownership you have of your time, of your earnings. And so I don't know where that number is. I don't know at which point you stop caring. I don't know at which point you say, what's the point? If If I work very hard or I don't work very hard, I'm, my income is not going to change. This is more of a third experiment that I want, you know that I'm trying to explain. And one thing we know is that the government is not very good at making things and providing. You know, it's, the government is good at running military, the gov- but the government is not very good at running you know, at running businesses. If you're not sure about this and you you are an American, just go to the post office and try to send out a letter, and you'll be stuck in line for a long time. And uh, think about post office versus UPS. UPS did not receive any uh, subsidies from the government, etc. And it's able to send things faster and cheaper than post office. And you get a great service and you get guaranteed delivery, etc. And I said, this is not a perfect example, but this, that's an example. I think the, just the capitalism is not a perfect system. Everybody knows this. The only problem is we could not come up with a better one. And the reason that system works 
because it is in line with our genetic programming of, of survival, of selfishness. Yeah, and, the, and when I say selfishness, is that when I wake up in the morning, I think about my family, but not a family that is you know, 10,000 miles away in some other, other, some other remote town in the United States. I think about my kids, my wife, myself. And that's what drives me to make the best decisions you know, you know, I, can, I, I can for my family. But the beauty of capitalism, of course, is that when everybody makes these selfish decisions, it ends up benefiting everybody else. And that's you know that's kind of the beauty of you know of capitalism, and I know all the common pushbacks, etc. And it's and I think uh, success of any country, it's finding this right balance of you know I guess not to have a I don't want I don't want the United States to go to the capitalism of a hundred years ago, but at the same time I would argue I would not want United States to go to the where the Europe is today, or especially some European countries. And I understand this is not a perfect example again, because United States has many advantages, geographic advantages, etc. But if you look at the amount of innovation coming from United States versus the amount of innovation coming out of Europe, or uh, of number of new businesses starting up, you would see that the reason I think the reason we are you know, more successful because and we are more entrepreneurial. Because the system is still encourages risk taking. The more the more socialism you have, the least less risk taking you want to do. I'm not. By the way, I'm not writing. I'm not writing for the office. I'm just. Uh, <laughs> you ask and I answer. So, if you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or Zepbound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So coming to the United States, and you pretty quickly became involved in finance and investment, didn't you? What happened there? Yeah, so I arrived to the United States when I, when I was about 18, 18 and a half. And um, I went to university, and I, while I was at the University of Colorado, I tried dating like five or seven different majors. And I really, you know, it took me a while to find myself. And then I got a job at an investment firm. And an investment firm, and they hired me not because of my investment skills, because I had none. They hired me because of my computer skills. At the same time, I was taking finance classes at University of Colorado. And it just was a finance and investing clicked with me. And I was fairly lucky because I think at the time I was 21 and 22, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And when you know this, you have focus. And focus is like a magnifying glass. You know, I just focus all my energy on studied in finance. I got my undergraduate degree in finance, graduate degree in finance. I got my CFA. And I haven't worked a day in my life since. Well, that's, I, that, I was just going to quote back at you because you call your work a hobby, not a job. Yeah, because I love it so much. It's not a, like I would do this, if you cut my pay by half or by, you know, by two thirds, it wouldn't make a difference. I love what I do and money is a secondary consideration. It's just, I can't wait to learn about new company, to study new industry. I just love what I do. So yes, so when when you, when you love what you do, it stops. You know, the work stops being work. And by the way, this is what I exactly tell my kids: 
you want to find something you're really passionate about, and that's to become your career. Mm. And, and you talk about it as being like an intellectual game, isn't it? That um, for you, it's like playing chess or yeah. learning an instrument, for example, that it becomes a game. So investing is a very interesting endeavor because it is, a, it is an intellectual challenge. If you do it right, you get to learn all the time about different companies, in, d- different industries, and none of this knowledge is wasted. Because what it does is allow you to create mental models of how to look at something complex and simplify it, and you can port it from one industry to another. There is a very famous Stoic uh, philosopher, Seneca, and he has this saying, time discovers truth. And that is what investing is really for me. It's just, I want to discover truth before time does. That's, that's really kind of, this is how I look at my job, just, you know, just looking for truth. What is your definition of value investing? So value investing is often misunderstood. It's a lot of times people look at value investing as basically buying statistically cheap stocks. I would argue that's a very primitive way to look at value investing. Value investing is really philosophy. It's a, it's a, it's a philosophy how you how you approach investing. And you know, as any philosophy, it has tenets. So I call them commandments. And um, I have the six commandments of value investing. I'll give you a few. And your listeners can get the other ones on the six commandments that come. They're absolutely free. It's just, I wrote this essay called The Six Commandments of Value Investing. And it's just, I think it's a great primer in general on value investing. So if you just go to sixcommandments.com, they can find it there. But basically, let me give you a few. So number one, a value investor approaches stock as a business, not, not a piece of paper. And so when we analyze a company, we ask us a question, would we want to own the whole business? If, it, if we could buy the whole company. So when you do this, it changes your mindset tremendously. Suddenly you start looking at the management and how well, how well they run the business, how well they allocate capital, start looking at cash flows, return capital, these kind of things. Another, one, another commandment would be margin of safety. You want to buy a company at a discount to what it's worth. And you want to do it for a couple of reasons. Number one, when the discount closes, you make money. But number two, and as important, is that it prevents you from losing money. Because when the future plays out different from than you, from you expected, if you bought it a significant margin of safety, you may not make money, but you won't lose money. Which brings me to the third point. To value investors, risk is not really volatility, it's stock going up and down in price, but the stock price declining and never coming back. So this is why the margin of safety is so important. Because I'm not worried about, I bought the stock, I declined. If it's fair value hasn't changed, it's just really just a market's opinion of what the company on the, on the stock price today, which may change tomorrow. So let's, so so those are kind of the three commandments, but there's three more on the sixcommandments.com. Mm. I kind of like the way that you talk about businesses. And I'll just quote another guest that I had on the podcast who you should not refer to a company by its ticker code, you should always use its full name because that reinforces in your mind that you are actually talking about an actual living, breathing business. I love it. Yeah, I think that's. I think that's. I think that's a great idea. And I and uh, mm-hmm. no, I think it is a great idea. So let me let me take it a step further. Mm. For when I buy a company, when I buy a stock for clients, so I run an investment firm in Denver, right? So I have clients who come to us and say, Vitali, here's my life savings. Please don't screw it up, okay? So we, and we build a portfolio of stocks for them. And 
But the, here's the problem. We spent sometimes hundreds of hours analyzing each company. But for them, it's just a collection of tickers and names. You know, CHTR, what does it mean? You know, like that's what it is for them. So it's my job to write letters to them to actually explain, like let's say we bought charter communication, like so and SQL CHTR. So my job is to write them a letter to explain them that we bought one of the best cable companies in the United States. And here's the, what are the risks of the business. Here's why we think the risks are overstated. Here is the what balance sheet looks like. Here's what cash flows look like. Here's why we think it's undervalued. And I, this is what I go through. Discuss, you know, so every letter, I go through these kind of discussions for every buy decision we make, for every sell decision we make. We talk about all, all the other companies we own in the portfolio. And here's the thing. Over time, if my clients do their homework, which is a, a prerequisite for them to be a client of my firm, then they, the tickers will stop being tickers and they become companies. And they'll stop being Vitalis companies and they become their companies. That is the goal. Like, that's why I write this long, long letters a few times a year. If someone's listening to the, this podcast and is becoming interested in researching and to become a value investor themselves, it's going to take a long period of time, I know. But what are a couple of the first steps that uh, they could possibly be looking at to begin this journey in learning how to value companies? Okay. So number one, you have to have passion. Like, and I can't stress this point enough. There's a, there was a famous basketball coach who said, you can't teach height <laughs> in basketball. That's beautiful. <laughs> Okay, well, in investing, you can't teach passion. If you don't have it, just hire somebody else to do it. You know, don't do it yourself because you'll be competing against people who do have it. And therefore, they'll stick with the problems longer. They will, you know, their uh, capacity to suffer will be so much greater than yours. And by the way, there's plenty of suffering that comes with investing. So how I would do this, number one, I would take as much money as you could afford to lose, okay? Look at this as tuition money, okay? But again, it has to be, you know, just enough money that you can afford to lose. And then ask yourself, what industries do I understand well? So I had two stories. I had a college student come to me. He was a graduate student. And he asked me, like, what industry I should focus on? I said, well, what do you do? He said, well, I work for an aerospace company. And I've been working in this business for 10 years. I said, well, you probably should not be analyzing restaurants, but you probably know a lot more about aerospace industry than I ever will. It's very important when, you, when I analyze a business for the first time and I know very little about it. It's almost like when you read a sci-fi novel for the, you know, a sci-fi novel for the first time and you have to do what's called world building, right? Because the physics of this, of the of Earth may not, work on the planet Gamma or whatever that, you know, and therefore, and they have different spaceships and they have, you know, all the different things. So there is some similarity when you analyze an industry which you know nothing about, you have to do a lot of world build, building. Well, if you are working in aerospace industry, you already know this world. So you can skip a very important step of you when, you know, you know what the fuselage of an airplane is, which, or whatever. Okay. Point number three you don't want to have a diversified portfolio. And this is an important point. This is somewhat counterintuitive. Today, when I manage IMA, I, we have a very diversified portfolio of stocks. But I have a team of analysts, 
And I've been doing it for a long time. Even without analysts, yeah, I would be able to do it just fine because I've been doing it for a long time. At this point, you're just trying to learn. And therefore, I would focus maybe one, two, or three companies, just enough stocks and companies that you can understand extremely well. Because it's very difficult for somebody who hasn't done this to cover 25, 30 stocks. Okay, so I would just stick to a few companies and then try to find people, uh, like-minded people who look at investing the same way and try to learn from them. I mean, those, I think, probably the steps I would, you know, uh, you know those were the steps I would, I would take. I really like the way that you talk about the story and how you've got to understand the story and constructing your particular mental model around a company and around businesses. But that's a double-edged sword. I mean, you can construct it, but you can also delude yourself with that story. And you can be also confirming your own biases. I mean, I was just talking to a friend last night who is just very passionate about changing the world for um, to become a carbon-free future. And he's found this little battery uh, company here in Australia, and he wants to invest in it. And I keep on saying to him, well... You know, what's their cash flow? Uh, what, how much is being invested? Do they have good management? But he gets so caught up in the story that supports his own beliefs as well. Well, I, I mean, I think, I think storytelling is uh, one of the best ways to communicate in general. However, mm. you're absolutely right. It is a very, da- it could be extremely dangerous. In uh, ancient Greece and Rome, there was this people, they were called sophists. And the word sophisticated has the same root. And sophistry as well. Yeah, as exactly, word exactly. Comes from yes. Yeah. yeah. Mm, lying. Yeah. Well, those people were, they were not necessarily liars, but they were, you know, they were basically. Oh, that's right. They were storytellers, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah. They were, yeah so, the, like, as I understand, basically, like, if you, if you look at ancient Rome and Greece, there was a, just a lot of competing schools. Sophists, basically, they would teach kids or young adults of how to. Uh, make a, a very compassionate, emotional argument. And they wanted them to be able to make argument for and against. Okay? So, uh, Stoics looked at sophists with, with a lot of caution because they felt it's a spear that could be used for good or for bad, so without the moral compass. So, and therefore, they, in fact, Stoics had, had an opposite approach. They basically would say, that they want to break down an argument to complete bare bones, okay? So, uh, and this is a, I think I'm quoting Marcus Aurelius, who was an emperor of Rome and who was a, one of the most famous Stoics. He said, um, instead of thinking about, you know when you go to a very fancy French restaurant and you, they bring you the salmon and, and the, the explanation of the salmon by this waiter is going to take about five minutes. It's going to be a lot of words you won't understand and, you know, with honey and herbs and a whole bunch of other things. Well, Marcus Aurelius would look at this you know, f- salmon and say, this is a fish with herbs and honey on, on it, okay? So he just got it down to basics. And I think it's very important for us to, like especially as an analyst, and this is very important, when analyst companies, I spend a lot of time listening to conference calls where you, you hear management speak or you listen to the presentations. And to become a manager at a company, you know, an executive at a company, you need to have a certain ba- uh, basic uh, set of skills. And being a great speaker is one of them. Now, sometimes you have this, you know, this, uh, this managers who are incredible speakers. And 
when I recognize that, that this person is an incredible speaker, I become very cautious. Now, when I listen to them, I try to break down the message to the bare bones because I understand that I'm as, go- as gullible as everybody else when, you know, because I get influenced by how they speak. Okay. And therefore, I, it doesn't, by the way, it doesn't mean they're lying. I don't want to imply that. I just know that my an, uh, analytical ability will be a little bit less good because of, of them being so per, uh, persuasive. Uh, so it means I have to work a little bit harder to make sure that I'm objective. So you have to be aware that storytelling, on the one side, that's the most effective way to communicate. You mentioned my book. I think my book is just a whole bunch of storytelling. And this is why I think it's easy to get through the book because it's just, you know, story after story after story. And that is a, and I'm not doing it because I'm trying to be a sophist. Maybe I'm just genetically sophist, but it's just, that's the only way I know how to communicate. And just think about it, this conversation right now, it's just a lot of storytelling. So, <laughs> uh, so I have to be aware of myself that I think the um, Dostoevsky said the most important thing, you don't want to lie to yourself because you're the, you're the easiest person to deceive. So, so we have to be careful with ourselves as well. So as an investor, and when a CEO or management is explaining the salmon that they're putting on the table in front of you, using Stoic philosophy and using those Stoic principles, how do you break that meal down into its bare bones? Well, I think so. The, for us, it makes it somewhat easier because for every single company, we build a financial model. We don't buy it on words, right? So for every company, we build a financial model, which should be grounded in reality. And based on this model, we try different assumptions. We try uh, pricing in high growth, medium growth, low growth, try different scenarios, and then see what the company is worth, is the stock is the company's worth. And then based on that, we decide, do we want to own the business? Is it cheap enough or not? We have a very well-defined analytical process. And going through this process kind of clears out a lot of sophistry. So what inspired you to write the book, Soul in the Game, which was decidedly a non-investing book? So I've written two other books before. I've written a book, uh, two books on investing. Kind of been there, done that. It was fun. And I think, you know, and, and I think, in fact, my, my second book, The Little Book of Service Markets, is probably more relevant today than ever, even more relevant than uh, when I wrote it in uh, 2010. Over time, I've been writing. I've been writing since 2004, and I started writing investing articles. And over time, little by little, I started to bring stories about my kids, about classical music, into investing as a character. A lot of times, just still an investment story. But over time, they went from kind of being supporting actors to being main actors. And Phil, the most amazing thing happened. And, I, and I, this happens to me all the time. People wrote to me, Vitaly, I, come to you, I came to you for your investment articles, but I'm really staying because of your insights about life. And I tell you, that gave me so much more. Like Writing about investing was easy because I have the pedigree. That's what I do. Writing about life, that required a lot more confidence. And that feedback from readers gave me the confidence to keep writing about life. And so this book is basically, the reason I wrote this book, because I wanted to, it's a completely altruistic endeavor because it's not even about investing. I just wanted to make a difference in people's lives, okay? My greatest hope 
is that somebody reads or listens to the book on the Audible, and a few you know, chapters touch them in a way that makes them do something different and improves their life. And um, the book came out about three months ago, and I keep getting emails daily from people who are saying that I've done that. So, And what is it that you are saying about life in the United States at the moment that um, needs some work? Oh, life in the United States, oh my God, we are the most divided society we've ever been, ever. We are, you know, we have uh, this luxury beliefs of, uh, of, you know, things that we would like to be true, but not actually, uh, our beliefs are not grounded in reality. We would, we, we pursue those things as if they were true. And then when they meet reality, we get surprised. I'll give you a few examples. And this is uh, ESG. Uh, I, I mean, I love the idea of doing things that would, you know, combat climate change. But that's not what ESG, what ESG is. Let me tell you a true story, which basically mm. sums up you know, what's happening with envir- you know, our environmental um, virtue signaling. My son, Jonah, 21 years old, he has a plastic coffee mug from Starbucks. He, take, he goes to Starbucks and thinks, you know what? I'll do good for the environment. I'm going to use a reusable cup. He gives the cup to the clerk. The clerk makes coffee in a paper cup pours it in a plastic cup, throws the paper cup away, gives plastic cup back to my son and says, thank you so much for saving the environment. I would like for us to have zero emissions. But we focus on cars. And when you think about, you know, like the most, you know, on evil oil companies. Well, I'll give you a very, very interesting statistic. Bill Gates wrote a book about environment and there was a chart in that book which basically showed that about 14% of CO2 comes from Cars, trucks, and planes. 14%. 14? 14, 14 or f- one, one, one four. four. One four. Yeah. As much CO2 comes from farming and cows, as much CO2 comes from construction. You don't see anybody talking about evil construction companies. You don't see anybody talking about evil cows, right? I'm not making an argument that we should completely ignore of CO2 coming from cars, but if your goal is to change the environment, you know, you should probably focus not just on 14%, but also mm-hmm. not forget about 86% of what's you know, causing CO2. Mm-hmm. And um, we are so preoccupied with the 14% that we ignore 86 There are a lot of things that are wrong with the United States today. And despite all that, this is still the only country I want to live in, you know. So, so <laughs> uh, it's 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 a you know, and uh, it's you know, and we are a lot more divided now than ever before, etc. But it's still, uh, I would choose to live here than anywhere else. Okay, I just wanted to. This is not um, a question about investing, but I've got in my notes here, and I can't remember where I found this. Is that you believe that ACDC can make you a better writer? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'll just preface this by saying that ACDC played at one of my school dances. That's how long I've been around for. <laughs> oh, I see. So I got so I got so I got to tell the story. So I got to tell the story. See, another, you know, another story. Um, mm. so my son Jonah was born in 2001. This is in the early innings of internet. And my wife and I read I forget it, I read a headline or whatever. And the headline said if you if your child listens to Mozart, he's going to be well de- more developed, and you know, and uh, they even implied he'll become a genius. So I read this article when my wife, I think, was like five or six months pregnant, and this was a time where she had a CD player. So I bought a belt that had a speaker on this, and we connected CD player, and she walked around the house listening to Mozart's music, 
So the Mozart music was playing to my wife's belly, and my son was listening to it even before he was born. But then I actually read a study uh, a few years ago. And the study, actually, that's not what the study said, actually. The study basically, so the study was conducted by a guy who liked Mozart. And so he conducted the study using Mozart's music. But he, it's, he admitted that it could have been ACDC. It didn't matter what it was. It just had to be music. Hmm. And what happens to you when you listen to music, your left brain and right brain, the connection between them gets stronger. And while you're listening to music and you're doing something creative, it enhances your creativity. Okay. However, that only lasts maybe 10 minutes longer than you listen to music. So after you stop listening, that, that benefit goes away. It gets a little bit more complicated. So because you have to be very careful which music you listen to. And it doesn't have to, it has nothing to do with ACDC or Mozart. But um, I'll give you a few examples. If you listen to music with words, that actually, it activates uh, part of your brain where it starts to interpret the words. Actually becomes, it reduces, may actually tax your brain more. Some music, for, for instance, when I write, I listen to classical music, but I can't listen to violin concertos. Just for some reason, it doesn't. I love violin concertos. Okay, nothing against mm, them, mm. but it just for for some reason it just interrupts my you know uh, my thinking. At the same time, when I write and I get stuck, I listen to operas. And the good thing is, most operas are you know they're either in, in Italian or French or German, so I don't speak the language. So they might as well be in a Martian to me. And so when I listen to operas, so the language doesn't bother me, but it just, it actually induces my creativity so much. It, a lot of times it helps me to get through the writing block. So you just have to figure out what music works for you and what doesn't. And if a CDC, you know, if a CDC works for you, great. So tell uh, listeners where they can find out more information about you. And of course, the book, Soul in the Game. Yeah. So I think the easiest way to do it is uh, if they go to soulinthegame.net. Mm-hmm. There, they can subscribe to my articles. They can read about the book. Now, since the book came out, I wrote about four or five new chapters. Mm. And if they buy the book, there are instructions there how they can get those new chapters absolutely free. And here's the best part. I keep writing. So, you know, mm. you get new chapters over time as I write them. So, soulinthegame.net is probably the best place. You can get the book on audible format. So, I figure if you listen to this podcast, you probably like to listen more than you like to read. Not necessarily, but a lot of people do. And finally, I have a we have a podcast, which is a kind of a lazy man's podcast. It's imagine my articles are basically read to you. Mm-hmm. And um, so if you just look for intellectual investor podcast, mm-hmm. wherever you listen to podcasts, yeah, so you can listen, you can subscribe to a podcast. And uh, of course, you're on uh, Twitter as well. Is that your main social channel? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm on. Yeah, I'm on. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. It's a my first name Vitali, mm-hmm. I Y at the end, K letter K Vitali K. You can find me on Twitter, and I'm actually I'm, I'm I really enjoy Twitter. Actually, it's a I do too. It's my favorite. <laughs> it's a place for me to go and just like when I have a new thought, just to share with the world and see what the world thinks. And uh, yeah, so I'm I'm on Twitter all the time. Though I have to, you know. I try to manage my time wisely when I'm there. We do. We always do. Vitaly Katzenelson, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Phil, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend, especially if it's someone who needs to start thinking about investing for their future. You'll be helping them and helping me to keep this show on the road.
Stocks for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Stocks for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thank you for listening to my podcast. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.